Well, before we look together into this psalm, let's pause just one more time. Let's go to, go to the Lord and ask him to bless our time in his word. Let's pray together. God, our Heavenly Father, this is a time that you have appointed for your church to gather around your word and be taught by your spirit to the glory of your Son. So, Father, we pray that all thoughts of anything distracting, anything that would hinder our gaze upon Christ tonight, Father, we pray that we might set that aside. That the things of this earth might grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and your grace as we look into your word. Father, we need you. Without the power of your spirit, this is a vain exercise. But God, we need you to move among your people. If there is change to be done, Father, we know that it is you who can do it. So, Father, we just throw ourselves open before you tonight and we say, change us. Mold us and fashion us into the image of our Lord Christ. That is why we gather together here. We ask it in the precious and the holy and the beautiful and the magnificent name of Christ. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, as... uh, Peter said, yes, I am from Florida, which is very much like uh, Edinburgh. Um, It rains in both places a lot. Um, We just have much warmer rain in Florida, um, which is nice. But it is good to uh, be able to come to you this evening and just have the honor of opening up God's Word. And so I hope you still have your Bibles open to Psalm 51, because we will be looking there. If you've seen us, myself and my family, come into church, you know that we have recently welcomed a new baby into the world. Uh, Our son Grayson is uh, three months old now, and bringing him into the world brought back a lot of memories from when our first child, Delaney, was born five years ago. And one of the memories that really sticks out on both occasions is that babies cry a lot. They cry all times of day and night. They cry in the pew. They cry at home. They cry. It seems to be their habit to cry. In fact, in those first few weeks, you start to believe that the reason that God has given you this child is to see just how long you can stay awake at one stretch. How long can you keep your eyes open physically? But we know, obviously, as parents, wise as we are, we know that our son cries because babies cry. That's what babies do. They cry. But when I'm holding my son and he's crying, which he does, sometimes I remember a story that I saw on television many years ago now about an orphanage in a remote and impoverished region of Romania. The TV presenter brought his documentary camera crew into this orphanage, and the first room that you go into when you first enter the orphanage was the room for newborn babies. And the cry of those babies was deafening to the point that you could barely hear the presenter speak. And you could tell people just could not hear themselves thinking. But then he he walked out of that room and moved slightly down the hall to the room with slightly older babies. And there was a marked decrease 
and the sound of crying. It was noticeable to the point that the presenter asked the nurse who was there, what's changed between these two rooms? And the nurse replied in broken English. She said, we have very few workers here. And these babies have learned that it does no good to cry. Their cries will bring no one. So they've learned that early on in life, that cry as they may, people will not come. So they've learned that it does no good to cry. Now, when you hear that, if you're a parent or even if you have a compassionate heart, doesn't that make you want to go to that orphanage and scoop that child up and say, you can cry all you want to. I can hear you now. You cry because there's someone here that hears you. In that sense, a cry suggests that there's going to be someone out there that hears and will answer. That's why cries are loud, so someone can hear and answer. In Psalm 51, King David is crying, but he's crying with the full confidence that God will hear him. He's not crying in vain. He knows that. Even though he has sinned, and he has sinned, he knows that his cries will be heard. They will not be ignored. His crying will do some good. You see, the king has fallen, and he has really fallen. He has sinned in what we can only call a grotesque fashion. He has taken another man's wife, and he sent her husband to the front line of battle to be killed. Now, for a time, King David had salved his conscience with the fine things of royalty. But after a while, there was a prophet, a prophet who had the integrity to stand before the king and lead his conscience to the point where he could point his finger in the face of royalty and say, Thou art the man who has sinned against God. And now, cut to the very quick, the king composes this psalm as a cry to God. He has seen that he has sinned in God's sight, and this psalm is the, is the outcry, is the crying out of a soul that knows it has fallen Now, this isn't general wailing. In fact, if you read, he doesn't even mention tears in the psalm. So it's not crying in the sense of just general wailing, but it is a crying out for something. It's a crying to someone for something very specific. And that something very specific is something that each and every one of us here need. King David is crying out for something that everyone in this room And everyone who has walked the face of the earth, besides our Lord Christ, needs. Like the fallen King David, every one of us has sinned and fall short, very short of the glory of God. We have all, even as Christians, sinned in a grotesque fashion, just as we see King David here in this psalm. What we need is not a change of behavior, not a change of lifestyle, Not just a change of attitude, per se. What we need runs much deeper than that. And it's a fundamental change of heart. We need, in fact, a new heart. But there's a problem. The problem is, neither you nor I are equipped to change our own hearts. 
We don't have the capacity, we don't have what's required to be able to change our own heart on any matter. Now, this works on many levels. It's true on many, in many different ways and in many different levels. But we'll look at just two in kind of our introductory thoughts. This is true for those who perhaps do not know Christ that are here tonight. If you don't know Christ, it may very well be that our God will reach in this very evening. And as John Wesley said, that he felt his heart strangely warmed. It may very well be that God will reach in. And take your heart and draw you to Christ. Because we're told that even though we cannot change our own heart, our great God can take the very most rebellious heart of stone and he can transform it into a heart of flesh that beats for him. He's promised us that again and again in his word. He can take those who are rebellious against him, who are persecuting his church even. And he can give them a heart of flesh that beats for him and him alone. But it's also true, not just for those who perhaps don't know Christ this evening, but it's also true true for those who have received Christ as their Lord and their Savior this evening. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but there absolutely is conviction for those who know Christ Jesus when our hearts need to change about a particular issue. There is no condemnation in that, but there is definite conviction that cannot be ignored by the child of God. He has given us a new heart, but there may still be something over which our hearts need to be radically changed. Something that over which our hearts need to be transformed and given a new perspective. And some of us here tonight, if we're honest, we know that our hearts are not what they should be. It may very well be that we need a change of heart toward our spouse. It may be that we need a change of heart toward our employment. We need a change of heart toward our possessions or toward our general anxiety over life, or it may be that some of us are sitting in the seat of David and we need a change of heart in the area of lust. Whatever the individual cry is tonight, whatever the individual situation, we can turn to Psalm 51 for hope. Because even though we need a change of heart, and we may feel that in a very real way tonight, We are told that God is not far off for those who know Christ Jesus. He is very near and he hears our cry and he would change our heart. So tonight I want us to see two things from this psalm very quickly. Two things from this psalm that come to us by the power of the Holy Spirit and from the pen of a fallen king. The two things I want us to see are the first, the cry for a changed heart. And secondly, the effect of a changed heart. So first, there's the cry for the change of heart. And secondly, what that produces. What will the effect be of a changed heart? We're going to see both of those things from God's word tonight. So let's look together just now at the first two verses of Psalm 51. It says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your there's different translations here. Loving kindness. According to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. So there, in just these first two verses of Psalm 51, we see David giving us a, an amazing contrast that we need to latch on to. 
In these first two verses, he, he appeals first to God's character. He says, God, I'm appealing to your mercy, your loving kindness, your tender mercies, your unfailing love, your mercy, God. So he's first appealing to God's character, but at this very same time, he is confessing his own character. It says, my transgressions, my iniquity, my sin. So God is getting progressively ever higher and higher and higher in his character. And we see David's character getting lower and lower and lower. And we see a huge gap there between God's unfailing and perfect character and David's sinful and fallen character. Just in the first two verses, we see him drawing out that contrast between God's mercy and his continual transgression and iniquity and sin. Now, when you and I are calling out for a change of heart, it's very good to maintain both of those perspectives. Because that perspective, when they come together, will guard us from both pride and despair. See, pride is vanquished. Because we look at our own sin, our iniquity, our transgressions, every way that we have fallen. So there is no room for flesh to glory, no room for flesh to boast whatsoever. But at the same time, we need not fall into despair because of his mercy, his loving kindness, his unfailing love. Both of those things are true at the same time. My iniquity, my sin, my fallenness, his mercy, his loving kindness, his unfailing love. And David is appealing to both of those. The problem is, in our efforts to humble ourselves, many times we think it's very humble to say that we've done something that God cannot possibly forgive. And on the flip side of that, when we want to feel better or we want to justify ourselves, we say that we've done nothing in need of forgiveness. But this perspective that we get in the first two verses of this psalm guards against both of those supposed virtues. It shows us as we read in this psalm, that we cannot justify our own sins. We cannot justify our own nature. But we absolutely can be forgiven and cleansed. Those two things are absolutely true at the same time. Notice the psalmist does not say, I have blotted out my transgressions. I have washed myself thoroughly. I have cleansed myself from sin. He knows this is not something that he can do. He knows it rests with the power of God and God alone. And he says, oh, God, blot out my transgressions. Oh, God, wash me thoroughly. Oh, God, cleanse me from my sin. These are cries to God. This is not a self-help book. This is not take these series of rules and regulations and fix yourself. This is a series of reminders that. Because of the nature of our heart, we cry out to God or we cry in vain. Oh God, cleanse me thoroughly, the psalmist says. Look at verses 3 and 4 and we see just how much he acknowledges his own sin. It says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. You only have I sinned? What about Uriah, what about Bathsheba? It's against you and you only have I sinned. Doesn't this show us that even the slightest sin against one another to the most grotesque sin against one another is first and foremost a sin against the holy God? 
Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. In other words, David is saying, Lord, you've got me. You have me dead to rights. He's like the fugitive who throws his hands up and throws himself down on the mercy of the court. He says, I have no argument. I have been absolutely wrong, and you would be absolutely right to cast me into outer darkness. I have no righteousness of my own. I have no plea on my own. I have no excuse. I have no rationale. I throw up my hands and throw myself on the mercy of a holy God. See, this is the ugly business of crying out for a changed heart. You have to fully confront the condition of your old heart. We can't just call out for a changed heart on credit. We have to fully confront the condition of our heart that needs changing. We have to look it dead in the face and say, there is something there wicked, and it needs to be made right. The ugly business of calling out for a changed heart means that we have to first confront the condition of our old heart. You know, I remember my first experience of buying a new car. I don't know if you've ever had that experience before. I probably won't buy a new car again myself, but I have had the experience of going into a lot and and purchasing a new car. You see, all through high school and all through college, I drove an awful, and I mean awful, 1987 Chevy S10 short bed pickup. It was a bad vehicle. And I don't mean that in bad in the sense of good, how you can flip that meaning. I mean bad in the sense of it barely gets you to point B. It's something that my uncle had picked up at an auction and gave it to us at a reduced price. It was that kind of vehicle. And I remember driving that rattle trap of a vehicle onto this new car lot to pick out my new car. I had graduated college. I was going to have a salary. And I said, I'm going to get a new car. You know, I remember something else that stands out in my mind about that Chevy S10 pickup. It was in that very pickup that I took my now wife, Chrissy, to our homecoming dance when we were 17 years old. She was so proud. She was so proud to be riding in that truck, as I was. I was very glad to be getting rid of that truck after I graduated college. And I'm here on this lot, and I look out across uh, all these brand-new cars, and I've decided on the one that I want. It's a brand-new Jeep Cherokee. I'm so excited about this. I'm ready to purchase this brand-new, shiny, straight-six vehicle. I'm just ready to get in it and take off. And then it comes time, once I've decided this, I need to negotiate the trade-in value of my old vehicle with the salesman. It was a very short discussion. I kind of sheepishly had my hands in my pocket. I wasn't a very good negotiator then or now, actually. But just standing there with the salesman, and I said, well, I know, I know it's not worth much. And his laughter interrupted me. And he said, much, and then in that perfect southern dialect that I love so much, he said, it ain't worth nothing. I responded, ain't worth nothing. I was completely and totally offended at his estimate of my vehicle. But with just two or three exhibits that he pointed out about the vehicle, the difficulty in starting, the difficulty in stopping, the difficulty in clutching, the difficulty in shifting, the difficulty in turning signals and windshield wipers and all these, all these things that were deficient. When confronted with the evidence, I had to say, well, it, and don't do this when you try to trade in a car. But I had to admit, it's in pretty sad shape. It is in bad shape, as a matter of fact. 
And the Bible tells us again and again and again that same verdict when we look at our old heart. It's in pretty sad shape. And just like me, when I hear that about my old ramshackle truck, and I get offended in in the front of all these brand new cars, when we hear that about our own heart, we can very easily get offended. And we can say, well, I'm I'm a good person. And the truth of the matter is, When compared to other people, it may be very valid for you to say you are a good person. If you're comparing yourself to other people, it may be easy to look at your community and say, I'm rather decent. I fit in. I've not been arrested. I'm not on the television. There's no one pursuing me. I'm not a picture's not up somewhere. I'm a pretty good person. But the problem with that rationale is God does not compare us to other people. When he renders the verdict and tells us we are not good people, it's against his holy, perfect standard, not against your neighbor, not against your best friend. He renders that judgment against the plumb line of his own righteousness. And he tells us your heart is wicked. And we feel we feel offended when we hear God say through Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. In other words, he's saying no one else knows the heart but me. And I'm telling you, you need a new one. You need a new heart. The Lord alone knows our hearts. And he says it's in pretty sad shape. You need a new one. Something has to happen there. And David also seems to understand that this problem is not just about behaviors. The problem runs much deeper than that. Look at verse 5. He says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now, this is not hyperbole here. This is original sin and total depravity all wrapped up in one ugly little verse. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. In other words, we commit sins not... Not just out of habit, but we commit sins because we have a sin nature. We have the fruit because we have the root. We produce sin because that is our nature. We are born with a sinful nature, born into this world through the first Adam as sin entered into the world. We have sin, sins, plural, because we have a sin Category, a sin problem with our heart. David says, oh God, in, these, in this verse 5, he's, what he's saying is, oh God, I recognize this is woven into the very fabric of who I am. This is not just a bad habit. This is woven into who I am. If I'm ever going to be rid of this sin and this ugliness that I see myself wrapped up in. David is saying, I recognize that something has got to happen to me, not just to my sin. Something has to happen to me. And that's where we come to it. That's where we come to the heart of the matter, if you will. The cry for change that we spoke of at the beginning. Here, the king has fallen in a spectacular fashion. He's tried to cover it up with his own the finery of his own royalty. He's been confronted by a prophet. He's been cut to the heart over his sin. 
He's confessed his sin. He's looked at the nature of his heart. And he's saying that something has got to happen. I have got to not just remold and reshape this old heart, God, but I need a new heart. Something has to happen to me. But what, if anything, can be done? And then his words start to become more hopeful. Which you might be relieved to hear. His words start to become more hopeful as he stops looking so much at what he has done and turns his eyes toward what God can do. He says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Compare that to everything he's just said. He just said, I was born into iniquity. It's woven into the fabric of who I am. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Now, it's interesting here that he uses the word hyssop. Now, hyssop was a plant that was used for several different um, purposes in the Old Testament. One of which uh, happened in the Old Testament during the plague of the firstborn child. During the time of what we now call the Passover, when the, the Hebrews were told to sprinkle the blood on the doorpost of their home, the plant that they used to apply that blood was hyssop. And hyssop was also used in ceremonial washings, uh, perhaps when a diseased person needed to be ceremonially cleansed and then would be permitted back into the fellowship of the community. It may be very possible that David is using an image here of restored fellowship between him and his God. Those two ideas, they're kind of wrapped together. God, cleanse me with Hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. He goes on, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Look at those two images there. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. In other words, the same God that can look at dry bones and say live can look at crushed bones and say rejoice. He can speak life into that. In verse 3, David said that his sin was ever before him. Now, if you've ever battled with guilt over a decision or a past action, you know exactly what he's talking about there. That that sin is ever before you. It becomes a weight that we carry on our shoulders or around our neck. It's like the mariner's albatross, a constant reminder of our failure and how we have fallen short. If you've ever battled with that, you know exactly what he's talking about there. And under that weight, David says that he began to feel crushed. But in verse 8, in verse 8, he begins to believe that these crushed bones might rejoice again. This is the first mention of joy in this psalm. His bones were crushed with the weight of his sin, but off in the distance, way off in the distance, he begins to hear the joyful sounds of worship. Still feeling the weight of his sin, and he begins to hear the joyful sounds of worship. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. He knows God will do this, can do this. You ever, when you're wrestling with some matter of sin and it's a, it's a recurring thing in your life, 
You come to God in praise and worship and that thing comes in your mind and you say, God, I don't want this between us anymore. I don't want that there. That's what he's saying there. God, I don't, I don't want that between you and me. Hide your face from my sin. Don't hide your face from me when I come to worship. He knows God will do it. And then we come to the cry. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy. There's the word again. The joy of your salvation. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And here it is, folks. This laid out plain for us. What David is saying here is, Lord, do not just forgive me. Change me. Lord, don't just forgive me. Change who I am. Don't just disarm me. Run me through to the heart. Kill this old heart and give me a new one. Make sin as awful to my eyes as it is to yours. Give me a hunger for whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, give me a heart that treasures these things. Rip out the heart that treasures other men's wives. Rip that heart out of me. Give me a heart that treasures the things that please you. That's the cry for a changed heart. Not, not God, just remove this guilt and make me feel better. But God, give me a heart for things that you have a heart for. Things that please you, God, I want them to please me. Change my heart, God. Not just get rid of the pain of guilt and the, the worry over what might happen. There has to be a point where we say, I don't want to be this sinful man anymore. I don't want to be this person. Give me a pure heart, God. And all of this, all of this, points us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we are told... That if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Here in these words, we hear this cry and we see the work of Jesus. Christ shed his blood to pay the penalty for our sin. And if we turn from our sin and our wicked ways and we turn toward Christ for forgiveness, we are told that we shall be saved and we shall be changed. We shall be saved. And believers, as believers, when we sin, the Lord calls us to repent of that sin, to turn away from that sin, and to walk according to our new life in Christ. Now, having cried for a changed heart, David then begins to celebrate what that heart would mean. We've seen, first of all, the cry for a changed heart. And now let's see our second and final point, the effect of a changed heart. Now, you see the transition in verse 13, if you look there, the transition from the cry for a changed heart to the effect of a changed heart. And it hinges on the word then. Then. There's actually a, a series of cause and effect couplets beginning in verse 12, and I'll start reading there. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. 
O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Notice something has changed here in the, the kind of the tone of this psalm that gives us David's perspective. David's change of heart will have an effect, not just within himself, but will have an effect beyond himself. You notice that all of this inward turmoil and self-loathing and identification of sin is transformed here when he says, if you give me a clean heart, then my eyes are not cast inward quite so much. They are turned outward toward an outward proclamation of the goodness and the glory of God. Part of the tyranny of sin in our lives is that it makes you and I think about ourselves all the time. Are you feeling depressed tonight? I have found that when I am most depressed, it is because I am most focused on myself. When I'm thinking about myself all the time, I find great reason to be depressed. When my eyes are just cast in and totally focused on myself and not the work of God around me, it's then that the, that, that sort of cyclone that we fall into just focusing on ourselves and everything that happens in the world is somehow related to us and we're the center around which everything is revolving around. But when God changes our heart, we start to see that the center of the universe is not us. It's Him. And we're freed up to take our eyes off of ourselves, and we're freed up to have our eyes fixed on Him. And He says, cleanse my heart, give me a pure heart, and then I will teach transgressors your ways. Save me from blood guilt and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. He knows that the effect of a changed heart, which we're looking at, one effect of a changed heart is a concern for the spiritual well-being of other people and not just yourself or myself. So the question is, as we look at this psalm is, Do we find it difficult to sing of his praises? Do we find it difficult to teach transgressors his ways? Do we find it difficult to open our mouth and sing his praises? Well, it may very well be that we have a a sin-entranced heart that just has its eyes focused on itself and needs to be made new. It may very well be that this shyness that we say keeps us from sharing our faith is actually a love of sin. Is actually just a love of my own image that doesn't want to be broken, that I don't want my reputation to be damaged. It may be that when God changes our heart, our eyes get off of that and onto Christ, and our lips are loosed. Because when Christ becomes precious to us, our lips will fly open. When God creates a clean heart in us, we want to proclaim Him and not ourselves. We want other people to know him. That's probably why Jeremiah said in chapter 20, verse 9, he said, if I say I will not speak of him or speak not boldly in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary of holding it in. He says, indeed, I cannot hold it in. Because God had done something to his heart there in that moment. If you'll forgive this pretty poor metaphor, a pure heart and a proclaiming mouth go hand in hand. Pure heart and a proclaiming mouth go hand in hand. For David, as we come toward a conclusion here, for David, a changed heart also brought an understanding, a renewed understanding of God's ways. Notice something strange when you compare verses 16 and 19. Let's look at those two verses just quickly. 16 and 19. 
And verse 16, he says, you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. But then in verse 19, he says, you shall be pleased with sacrifices of righteousness or righteous sacrifices with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. So he's saying, God, you are not pleased with offerings and not pleased with sacrifices. And then verse 19, he says, God, you, you shall be pleased with burnt offerings and sacrifices. As it makes sense, the reconciliation between those two verses happens in what transpires between them. You look at verse 17. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. In other words, God looks beyond the actions of the worshiper, the sacrifices of the worshiper, and he looks to the heart of the worshiper. God is not pleased with our sacrifices or what we bring to him or what service we might bring to God. He's not impressed with that as much as looking into our heart to see if it comes from a broken and contrite heart. See, that has not changed. Even in Charlotte Chapel in 2008, God is not impressed with loud singing. He's not impressed with well-tuned choirs. He's not impressed with eloquent prayers. He's not impressed with loud preaching, necessarily. If those things do not come from a broken and a contrite heart before him. He does not delight in those things. He delights in hearts that have been surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then if the choir is slightly out of tune or the preaching isn't quite so eloquent. God is pleased with his people because they have bowed the knee to Christ. But by broken and contrite here, it does not mean downcast. When we say that our hearts are broken and contrite before God, it does not mean that they're downcast. You see, when we need to have our hearts changed, we focus completely on the sin that so easily ensnares us. But once God touches our heart and it's been set free, it's then that our eyes are fixed on our redemption. Once we say, as Jesus put on the words of the humble man in the Gospels, once we say, have mercy on me, a sinner, which is the way David begins this psalm. Once we cry out, Lord, have mercy on me with a broken and a contrite heart the way that David does here. It's then that our hearts and our lips are freed up to say, my sin Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not the part, but the whole, was nailed to that cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh, my soul. When our hearts have been changed, it's then that they're made free to praise Him. That's the effect of a changed heart. The effect of a changed heart is it's no longer enraptured with ourselves, but it's enraptured with our Lord Christ. So if we're longing for change tonight, if we're longing for our heart to have a new attitude and a new perspective on things in our life, there's good news. Through Christ, we are sons and daughters of the Most High, and before the throne of God, we have a strong and a perfect plea. The great I Am, whose name is love. And he intercedes for you and me. And the glory of this truth is, we are not cast far off. He is near. He hears every one of our cries. And he would have our hearts change. Let's pray together.